This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. This is a very exciting day for me. I am back in the, the capacious Byzantine AEI studio. I have not been here in studio with a flesh and blood guest, I don't know, since uh, since Brontosauri roamed the earth. And um, I'm very excited to have uh, my friend and colleague, at the American Enterprise Institute, the author of the Faster Please Substack newsletter, which you really should check out, um, uh, one James Pethokoukas. We call him Jimmy P, mostly behind his back. James, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, uh, delighted to be back on The Remnant, and as you said, in person. Um, and, um, I mean, this way we can really just crank up the, the, <laughs> the witty badinage to, like, 11. Um, all right, so where to begin? Why don't we begin with, uh, your, I believe it's your latest one where you, you, you um, take a, uh, take umbrage a little, I think that's fair to say, um, at something that Ezra Klein has been talking about and writing about. Um, why don't you just sort of explain? Uh, well, uh, Ezra Klein, you know, New York Times columnist and, uh, and some other sort of left of center pundits, uh, who were very excited, uh, about the, uh, the Biden agenda on infrastructure and, uh, Building, funding clean energy and building you know clean energy infrastructure, and then they realized that it was going to be very hard to build any of that stuff on time uh, for the kinds of amounts that were being talked about because it's very difficult to build things in this country mm-hmm. because there's a lot of regulations that make it very hard to build things, and they sort of finally figured that out, and so they have created sort of a new brand called. Some either call it pro-abundance progressivism or Mm -hmm. supply-side progressivism with a focus on making it easier to build things, whether it's it's highways, whether it's windmills, uh, whether it's even whether it's housing. They're very into sort of increasing housing density. And so uh, Ezra Klein wrote a a column column about this and that this is good, that we should have these kinds of reforms, make it easier to build so we can have this glorious future of you know, perhaps fusion reactors and, you know, megacities and all that kind of thing. But what I have noticed, 
And I noticed that in this column and other sort of like-minded pundits talk about this issue is they're sort of starting from like today. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we, we, we want to have a better tomorrow. So we need, but like, how did we, how did we get here? Right. Well, how did we get this 50 years of making it harder to build things? What some of, some people call the great stagnation where we didn't get this sort of technological progress and economic growth that a lot of people thought we would get back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, it's the, we got, you know, we got Twitter, but we didn't get flying cars phenomenon. And I think it's important. I think it's important to figure out what went wrong so we don't make that mistake again and to under, understand that sort of, I use the word, you know, in the, in the substack, maybe it's a little dramatic, mourn, sort of mourn like what we didn't have. Like why don't we have coast-to-coast mm. -coast fusion reactors so no one talks about climate change? You know why aren't don't why don't we have orbital factories and colonies on the moon and why aren't you know why are we suffering from diseases that maybe we could have solved a long time ago? I think it's worthwhile thinking about that. I don't think some of these supply side progressives want to talk about that at all because it turns the arrow right back on maybe not them personally, uh, but folks on the left, environmentalists. Uh, who are you know, still part of that coalition, and I think they don't really want to think about that or address it. And they take and and their point is, I think, well, you know that we're we're here now. Let's just let's just look forward. Yeah. So this 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 touches on an abiding grievance of mine, which is that conservatives never are allowed to say, "I told you so," right? It's it's um when the when the, broadly speaking the left progressives, whatever label we want to put on them, discover they were wrong about something. It never occurred to anybody that they could be wrong, right? So, like, I've been pounding my spoon in my high chair about Woodrow Wilson for almost 15, 20 years now. And then and everyone's like, what a crank Goldberg is. Look at it. Like, the review of my, my book was titled Heil Woodrow. Like, what an idiotic thing to say about what And now, all of a sudden... Because progressive historians have realized, oh man, we blew it lionizing this guy for a century. It is now sort of like we always knew that Woodrow Wilson was a terrible guy. Same thing with like the overpopulation stuff. You go down these long lists, and it's when uh, there was just a piece in the LA Times today or yesterday about um, someone saying the worst public policy failure of the last, some public health guy saying the worst policy failure of the last 50 years was the decision to release seriously mentally ill people with schizophrenia and other conditions without any support structure and just put them out onto the street. And now we've got all these homeless, very sick people. Yeah. Our people have been talking about this for 40 years, you know, but like it's, it's when the, when the left realizes it's wrong, it's only when they get to say, they get to turn the, the people of the past into conservatives and say they were the ones right. to blame. Right. You know, but you know, like Ben Wattenberg, my predecessor, yeah. you know, my, the guy I used to work with, he was attacking the club for club of Rome stuff and the Mexico city policy stuff and the, the limits of growth and all that years ago. And everyone thought he was a crank. Everyone thought Julian Simon was a crank. Everyone thought my friend Ron Bailey was a crank. And it turns out they were actually right about a lot of things. I mean, it's, you know, for the, for this essay, um, you know, I, I just started going through New York Times editorials yeah. uh, since the 1960s. Um, 
And, you know, whether it's, you know, that whether just, you know, not that the New York Times is the only institution that you know, matters in America, but since, you know, Ezra it's, Klein worked for them also. And it's also truly emblematic yeah. of yeah. a certain branch of society. They didn't want to spend money uh, on the space program. Uh, they've been for every environmental regulation uh, over the past half century. Uh, they, they, they were, you know, they were gleeful when supersonic transport uh, was regulated, or, or we, we, you could fly a supersonic plane across the United States. Um, you know, anti, anti-nuclear uh, the whole time, just can't, couldn't wait to, you know, yes, we maybe we still need to have some of these reactors, but let's all pray for the day where we don't need nuclear reactors anymore. Right. So they, you know, they were not the, certainly not the only player, but they were part of the problem. And feel like Ezra Klein, I think they're so confident now that, well, now we, we figured things out. Listen, I am not, I mean, we had this recent breakthrough in nuclear fusion and, you know, that great. Maybe we'll have, you know, eventually have unlimited, unlimited clean energy. Uh, a lot of his environmental friends may, may be happy right now or saying they're happy and maybe they're happy with more funding for solar. But at the core of many of these um, groups, not all of them, is the idea that more energy equals more capitalist consumption and as we saw in 60 Minutes, this notion that we're using up all the Earth and we need seven Earths if everyone in the world is going to live like an American. I think that is deeply embedded, that consumption is bad, it's anti-capitalist. So again, if I was him, I wouldn't be too confident that everyone is going to, would be gleeful if they you know, were suddenly able to build an actual operating nuclear fusion reactor. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, there was a time when there were a bunch of environmentalists who were pretty open to the idea, open about being horrified at the idea of cheap, abundant, usable energy. And Paul Ehrlich being among them. Yeah, yeah. himself. Yeah. And so we should explain for people, Paul Ehrlich has really just a really a fantastic, ad, admirable record of being profoundly wrong so consistently on some of the most fundamental questions of the last 50 years. He's the author of the famous book, The Population Bomb. He and my old boss, Ben Wartenberg, used to debate all the time because Ben was pro-baby. And, um, and I mean, you go back and you look at it like, what is it? He predicted that mass starvation by the 1980. Um, I think, I think the United States would have a population of like, you know, 20 million by the year. To, right. I mean, a lot, there was, a, there's been a lot of accountability on those predictions. Yeah. And so someone posted, a um, a clip of him on a today show saying that, uh, that, by law, you should only be allowed to have one child, and if you have more than one child, the parents should be thrown in jail. Um, and I just could so like I, I am actually sort of fascinated that sixty minutes did this. To me, it's very reminiscent of like the. Um, so he was just so listeners know he was interviewed on six profiled on sixty minutes two weeks ago, predicting again the same stuff he's always been predicting. We're using up the earth, yada yada yada. Um, they did devote an entire sentence to his wrong predictions. Did they? Yeah, they, there was there was a there was a single sentence. <laughs> Let's move on. So, but the, here's the, so here's the thing. Like when I saw that he was, I haven't watched it because I just figured that it's going to be. It was it was a subsidy for everybody at at Reason and Human Progress and Cato. <laughs> you know, for like oh no, I mean <laughs> every slightly center uh, right of center Substack, I think uh, has an essay. Yeah, and it, it was um, like it was like when sixty minutes went after Ron DeSantis. It was a million dollars in kind <laughs> contribution to Ron DeSantis, but. The question, what it reminded me of was like the memo gate thing, the Dan Rather memo gate thing. It's like, are they so in a bubble that they're really not aware of how radioactively stupid 
Paul Ehrlich is seen outside of anybody who isn't part of that bubble? Or do they know it and they're just trolling people for attention? Because, like, there are serious people who are kind of neo-Malthusian who we, you and I would disagree with. But Paul Ehrlich is like a human bloody shirt. Like, you just you can't wait bring well, him I mean, out. I, I mean, that's exactly what I like. Why would you have him? I mean, there were other, there were other experts uh, on that show. Um, and and it could, they, they could have just had those experts. Um, and, and they also may have wanted to include some people with a slightly different view, which would have been very, very easy. I, I wrote an essay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the website Our Worlds in Data, mm-hmm. which is a great website, and they have people there. They could have brought in you know, one of those people who could talk, you know, very good, had charts. And, but you bring Paul Ehrlich, and maybe people, you know, they, they've kind of heard of him, and maybe that's an attention getter. I don't know, because to me it discredits the entire segment and perhaps they are in a bubble and they still think we're in this world where we're using up all the earths uh there's too many there's too many people and we're just you know moments ahead of climate armageddon and are completely unaware of of counter arguments or the idea that there are people in the environmental movement who think oh maybe we do need nuclear power maybe we're not we're not going to focus purely on consumption and why capitalism is bad honest question like you and I both come from, we have very similar points of view about this stuff. Um, and in the last 10 years, we've kind of seen a, con, a growing, con, five years, growing convergence between some of the arguments of the sort of old green limits to growth crowd um, and the sort of quote unquote new right, you know, whatever we want to call them. Um, you know, Patrick Deneen has more in common with Paul Ehrlich than he does with me on matters of economics. Let's put it that way. Um, and I go back and forth trying to figure out how seriously I should take this stuff. Because on the one hand, I've always cared more about conservatism than I care about, like, Republican Party stuff. I like the arguments. I think the strength of the conservative movement has always been its willingness to argue amongst itself and one of the things AI believes in and all that. Um, on the other hand... Like, I reviewed this book, which I enjoyed greatly, and I, I got a lot out of, but I thought it was utter nonsense on its main points, which was, the main point was, we would all be better off if we were still serfs, living in, like, 11th century <laughs> Germany, right? And the so the question, though, is, like, forgetting, I mean, like, you can do a lot of damage to the country if the Republican Party starts to pick up some of these ideas, and we're starting to see the beginning of that. But do any of these ideas, whether they're on the left, on the right, really have any chance of succeeding with the American people? I mean, are you actually do you actually think that the American people will say, you know, you're right, Bernie Sanders is right, you don't need more than three kinds of deodorant, you know, so let's have a law banning excessive deodorant. Let's have a law, um, you know, limiting my ability to uh, to drive, to consume, to purchase things, or is this just a lot of dorm room argle bargle that actually has no chance in the actual real world. My my main concern is that it further delays progress. It further delays enthusiasm among policymakers to do the kinds of things I think to break out permanently from this long period I think of slower than expected technological progress and economic growth. I think at the end I think we had a great example over the past few years of like what people really think about sacrifice mm-hmm. and shortages 
and living a less productive life and have, you know, they, they didn't like it very much. Mm-hmm. People like going to the store and having all their brands available. They don't want to pay exorbitant amounts of money for gasoline. They don't like trying to buy a car and then there's no cars there for them to buy. People do not like scarcity. I think people like abundance. So I think over the over the long run, I think a lot of things I hope happen, I think they happen because I think that's innate to who we are as people. But boy, every delay, every delay is someone who's, you know, is is, is a poor person somewhere in the world who doesn't have opportunity. So I think mm. every moment counts. Uh, and that's sort of why I named the the newsletter. I think this will be the only other promo I do faster, please. So please, <laughs> let's can we can we move faster on these things? I mean, we've already spent half half a century sort of dithering around. I mean, I've spent a lot of time sort of looking at not just what you know, uh, you know, the futurists of the 1960s were saying, people like Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, but like what's more serious, uh, you know, like you know, Rand and other think tanks. Uh, I've you know, written a bit about Herman Kahn from the Hudson Institute. Their vision for the what they thought would happen in the 70s and 80s was fantastic, but also doable, I think, or something close to it, had we pursued, the, made the kinds of decisions that would have allowed it to happen. So I think while I think we can point to a lot of macroeconomic factors that were at play, I think we played a big role in those decisions. So maybe I want now for us to make those decisions and quit waiting. So give me a for instance, um, before we get to solutions, what were the things, what were the... What were the cool, awesome things that we don't have that Khan and those guys were predicting in the 70s and 80s? Well, I think you think were possible? Well, I think the most basic is that we was all have much higher incomes today. Mm-hmm. I mean, they assumed that the kinds of growth rates that we saw in the 1960s would either continue or accelerate. I mean, that, this was, this, 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 these were not wild, uh, these were not wild beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, uh, Another great one is because uh, uh, Gingrich loved him. Alvin Toffler. Oh, I remember. Alvin Toffler. Loved yeah, yeah. Alvin Toffler. Uh, Future Shock was uh, perhaps a well-known book. And, you know, Toffler, his whole premise, Future Shock, you know, there's going to be so much growth and so much information, it was going to drive us all nuts. Now, the information driving us all nuts, he may have just been a little early on that. Maybe that's finally happening. Uh, but it was premised on the rapid rates of economic growth just continuing. So the world just would be unrecognizable and changing so quickly. And... Uh, in an interview in the 90s, when clearly we did not have that kind of, they asked him, well, you know, he said, like, ah, the economists, the, the economists led me astray. I really thought it was, <laughs> they really thought we had this growth problem licked. Mm. And they did. They thought they had this growth problem licked. So I think the reason, like, the, the median income uh, of some of the United States is 70000 and not 150000 I think that's a difference. Now, we can also point to, you know, the usual uh, uh, list of uh, underwater cities, Mars colonies, flying cars, uh, universal vaccines, perhaps fairly uh, relevant today, or things we couldn't even anticipate. I mean, that's that's the thing. We can have these visions, but exactly how things are going to play out. I mean, if you would have asked somebody, you know, who was working on, you know, information technology in the 60s, exactly, you know, you know would, we, you know, would we be watching videos and buying things on our, our phones? They may not have predicted that. So I, I think... As cool to me as some of the things I just mentioned sound, I bet there'd be a lot even cooler mm-hmm. and more fantastic things, plus a richer world and a you know, less impoverished world, which is also pretty cool. Yeah, just purely informational thing. I assume I would have heard if it were no longer operative. But Moore's Law is still a thing, right? It, it is still a thing. Um, it has... It's slowing... Is, it is 
they have to do different things to sort of generate those kinds of gains. Or, what do we explain really quick? You well, Moore's laws is basically you can you're, you're going to get more out of your computer that you can put the you know you can uh, you know you can get as much for half the price or you can you know fit you know more you know on the chips. Uh, and now they're you know they're trying to have more specialized chips to do those things to kind of kind of keep up those gains. Mm. But those chips, uh, you know, one of the one of the beauties is that we could have computer chips that could do lots of things. I have to specialize them so those gains slow down even further. But that that but that's actually an excellent point. I mean, the counter argument is here. Well, so we didn't get nuclear fusion flying cars, but we did get the information technology. Maybe had we focused more on that, we wouldn't have gotten that. I don't know. Maybe we would have gotten both. Um, but I think to, but I think there's like a realistic counterfactual here. Like, had we made different decisions, that we would be a, have a, a a richer world. Now, maybe maybe to you that's not a better world. I mm-hmm. think that probably would be a better world. I think that's a real counterfactual, and I think to ignore that and think like what happened kind of was always going to happen, and we played no role in it, and therefore the people who were saying we should have done this other thing uh, that we did do, uh, and they there should be no accountability, as it is with Paul Ehrlich, zero had almost any had certainly had anybody on the right made that litany of bad predictions and made yeah. those recommendations, and here at age ninety. Like I got, I basically got nothing wrong. Maybe I was a little early, but the thrust of my argument. Right. Let's not let's not get, you know, let's not get bogged down in the details. Uh, it's unimaginable. Part of you know necessity is the mother of invention, and <laughs> yeah. in the original Planet of the Apes, yes. the reason they switched to apes was because all the cats and dogs had died. Yes, yes. And so you then obviously what you do is you go and find super intelligent apes yeah. to replace them. You know, because we all know our lives would be so much better if if border collies had thumbs. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, the Planet of the Apes, but like there are serious people making those predictions. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not sure about fusion, but I'm pretty sure we're gonna we're gonna have you know simian taxi drivers. <laughs> um, so, oh, this is what I wanted to get at. So, this is part of my my implicit bias against the left, broadly speaking. And and I should probably put it differently and call it statism because we now have a significant faction of status who are called right-wingers these days too. But, um, and I think Ezra Klein is, has been part of this sort of crowd is they get very excited about fixing problems so long as it's the government fixing the problem, right? That's the exciting part. The, the Fixing the problem thing is the permission structure to have government do something. And um, I just talked about this recently on on, on, on this podcast. Uh, I remember 10 years ago during the Obama administration, MSNBC would run these interstitial pro-MSNBC ads where it was basically different hosts just talking about how friggin' awesome government is and the one that drove me really crazy, well, the, the, the Melissa Harris Perry one talking about how we need to get rid of the notion of private ownership of children. Talk about a full employment act for right wing columnists. But the um, the one that really, I am willing to turn over several of my children. <laughs> to the government. I just want to be sure it's not but not all necessarily time. to the government. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not this government, but there'll be a, sure, government. I, a government, perhaps. Um, but the one that drove me crazy was Rachel Maddow doing that. You know, extremely condescending. You know you know, gather around the yurt and I will explain to you how the universe works kind of talk where she's at the Hoover Dam and she says, 
government can do big things. Government can do exciting things. They built this in four years, and you know we can do that again. That's what government can do. And the idea that somehow we're not building more Hoover dams because conservative opposition to big government stopped it. Like, if you tried to build a Hoover Dam, the left would eat your eyeballs. Or like, you know, like that thing. And I actually don't like those giant hydroelectric dams. That's why one of the reasons I want fusion is, like, it would be great for the environment, not just in terms of climate change, but, like, getting rid of these giant eyesores. Get, get the salmon back in those rivers, that kind of thing. But, like, this notion that somehow the only thing that has kept us from building more Hoover Dams was libertarianism rather than the whole suite of environmentalist, trial lawyer, you know, uh, conservationist regulations that stopped these things. And this is sort of gets to the point is like the only thing she really liked about Hoover Dam wasn't Hoover Dam. It was that the government did it. And I worry that I, I haven't read up on the supply side, you know, uh, pros- you know, abundance thing, but if you could make them, if, if you could do a mind meld with, with you about this stuff, and convince them that you could have the same solutions, but government wouldn't be in the driver's seat on this process. It would just get out of the way. I'm not sure a lot of people on the left would go for it because I think that's the thing that makes them excited. Well, I think two things uh, on that, just because you brought up the, the Hoover Dam. Paul Ehrlich was on The Tonight Show about 20 times between mm-hmm. 1968 and, and the uh, early 1980s. I mean, Johnny Carson was a big believer in worrying about population and using up all the earth. But I also remember, um, because you know, occasionally I was I, I could stay up late and watch Carson uh, making fun of the idea that there was this uh, uh, dam they were building, I think in Kentucky or Tennessee, that was being stalled because there was this tiny little fish called a snail dart. That was a big thing back yeah. in the day, and it, and it was kind of because it just seemed sort of ridiculous. This big dam and this little fit no one had ever ever heard of. And it, and it delayed the dam. I think finally they transplanted the fish. And we laughed about it, but like, but like why? Like why? Right. I mean, there's a reason. It wasn't, it wasn't conservatives preventing government from building a dam. It was a kind of uh, left-wing legislation signed, pushed also by Republicans that made it, that gave local groups the ability, environmental groups, the ability to stall that dam. So that's point number one, I think, to your point two. In the same Ezra Klein column, uh, which is sort of, a book review of this book called, uh, I think, Who Stole My Flying Car, in which the author makes some of these points, but, but you know, blames regulation, blames government. Klein was utterly dismissive mm-hmm. of, that, of, of that notion. Uh, and he, he said, like, gov- we, uh, government needs to be more involved. And I, I, don't, like, I don't like this book because it was, it's attacking government intervention and government funding. Yet, if we were to follow those New York Times editorials, Elon Musk wouldn't exist. Right. Right. That money would have been confiscated. Bernie Sanders, to the extent he likes space, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't, would want it all done through government. And we saw that when we were doing that, we didn't get big rockets that are, you know, big rockets that can go to the moon again or, or, or go to Mars. So there really is, like, it, Ezra Klein's written a lot of columns. Some other ones have as well. The notion of the private sector, of the entrepreneur, how, the, how this situation was created is almost completely, you know, yeah. just not touched upon. First of all, I mean, uh, the Where's My Flying Car, how you could not name that book, Dude, Where's My Flying Car, is a complete <laughs> mystery to me. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, all right, so with, with the understanding that 
some of the most important things the government could do would be not doing some things, right? Yeah. Say you had, um, you know, uh, Ron Klain's ear, you know, the, the president of the United States, and um, uh, um, or you could have 45 minutes to brief all of Congress, whatever, and make the case for a pro-growth, technological growth agenda, right? I know you, I know you care a lot about economic growth, but like, oh, man. but part of your argument is, is that technological growth is, the, it drives it. Is driving. Productivity world, right? is the thing that yeah. creates this stuff, right? So what would be on your wish list? Well, uh, I would let, uh, get as many smart people coming here as possible from other places. Uh, I would make sure that they could be, to the extent that they were doing the kinds of you know basic research that they could be funded uh, generously, uh, to the extent they're doing more applied research or commercialization, that we make sure we have a system where they could be funded by the private sector through venture capital. So I'd be very I'd be very uh, wary of making that more difficult to happen. Uh, I would look at some of these big regulations from the 70s, the National Environmental Protection Act, which uh, President Trump tried to reform. President uh, uh, Biden tried to reverse those reforms. Uh, reforms that the New York Times was you know, seemed to be against from my, my reading of it. I would take a hard look at eliminating that law or reforming to it such an extent that it's not really recognizable. Um, you know. Might want to build a moon base while we're at it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because I think that would be unbelievably awesome, uh, but it'd also be a great proof of concept for some of the technologies mm-hmm. uh, we might be using in the future, whether it's asteroid mining. So I think that would be a, 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 a pretty great idea. So I think a lot of it is, is both removing barriers and making sure science uh, is funded properly, both by the uh, private. Um, listen, uh, you know. Let's let's say you know when the space race was over, and there's you know one of my favorite shows is for all mankind, where they posit the space race never ended. Yeah. Uh, if, if if the space race when when that was over, okay, maybe we may be fine. The same decision is made not to keep pursuing Apollo. Okay. Well, there maybe what what if that sort of kind of whole of government effort had gone toward nuclear fusion? Mm-hmm. Would we be a half a century ahead today? I think. Quite, quite probably, but nothing came after it. Mm-hmm. There was, there, there was nothing. Instead, it was focusing on recycle, reusing, and reduce. That's what that was the next step we took. Um, just on asteroid mining, because that's a former obsession of mine, um, and it dovetail. It, it leads us into a productive conversation about science fiction. Um, it is amazing the degree to, you know this, this notion of scarcity driving conflict which is a very old and very accurate the further back you look the you know like i always point out that malthus was right talking about the past he was just really bad about predicting the future right right? and um you know so wars for resources are a thing or they have been a thing and all that kind of stuff but it drives me crazy in sci-fi movies and it's like you can list two dozen of them where the aliens invade Earth because they want our water, right? Or they want, you know, they want our resources. Or, um, and what I think a lot of people just have a hard time grasping is that if we could get in, if we could productively just exploit the resources of our own solar system, right? It's going to be a while before we get beyond our solar system. Um, notions of scarcity are basically over, at least for raw materials, right? I mean, like, I always love these pieces that say, 
there's an asteroid, you know, nearby that is worth six trillion dollars of in platinum, right? <laughs> and they never realize that the second we get it, <laughs> like the prices of be, platinum be like water. Right? Yeah. yeah. And similarly, like the idea that like aliens in Independence Day or whatever have faster than light travel, but they can't figure out how to make water or find water on the probably 20 billion water planets that are out there. And I think the reason I bring it up is I think it's part of this 1970s mindset is that our science fiction, one of the things I love about science fiction is it illuminates the human condition by putting humans in weird places. And so you actually see what humans are like, but we really can't grasp that we are heading towards more slowly than you would like a post scarcity life if we can make the right decisions there's a uh, there's a great book from the uh, uh, 60s Arthur C Clarke called Profiles of the Future and he has this great chart which he even he at the time he said is uh, you know it should only be used you know not not taken too seriously in which he listed all these advances everything from nuclear fusion to space drives and like when he thought they might become uh, viable, uh, and we and, and by this point we should have you know all the things we've mentioned we should already have. So, but he also said like you know it was very tough to predict the future. So I I don't think he would be shocked or any of these people from the sixties would be shocked that all these things uh, haven't happened. But for like almost none of them, yeah, almost none of them, they would I think they thought either they if you told them that they would say, well, we finally must have had a nuclear war. Because that was the only thing mm-hmm. that they even contemplated would slow down progress. It turns out we, you know, we, we didn't have a nuclear war. We just kind of did it to ourselves mm-hmm. a different way. All right, so where do we stand on, um, on fusion right now? We had this breakthrough where we produced more energy than we expended. But, right. like, what, what is the state of play? What does the next 10 and 20 years look like? It was a huge breakthrough because you proved you could recreate the process that powers the sun, that, we could, that you could do it, which is great. Um, that's, that is a real proof of concept that human beings could do it. Now, the way they did it, which is shooting a bunch of lasers uh, uh, at a sort of a nuclear weapons testing facility, is not how you're going to create uh, a nuclear reactor, uh, a fusion reactor. But there are lots of private sector companies working on that kind of technology and they're getting and they're getting funded and they're getting funded uh both by government but also significantly by the private sector so what what we need to do is create a machine because this is it's a machine uh that will create a lot of pressure so that a couple of hydrogen isotopes come together they're they're light they come together making something heavier but not as heavy as isotopes, so those some of that matter turns into heat, and you got to create a magnetic <laughs> bubble mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep that to keep that heat from the, you know sort of destroying the machine. But the beauty of that is the fusion is just dependent on having the machine; mm-hmm. it's not dependent on a resource. It is a post-resource technology. Can we do it? Uh, the private sector money gives me gives me confidence. These guys. Say, like, I think we can have a working commercial reactor by the 2030s, and that it will be a significant part of the portfolio mix uh, for other, with other te- by the 2050s. So, me, though, when I listen to them, what I think they think of this, this will, this will replace everything else. I, everyone's so pro solar. 
They don't want to say that, but it, to me, it just makes it utterly redundant, be spending time with giant solar mm-hmm. uh, fields. So that's what they think. That we still have to do it. We still have to do this reaction where you put basically put more energy, um, less energy in than you get out. We need to do it in a way that could lead to a commercial reactor. We have not done that yet. Yet these guys seem pretty confident. They think we can do that. And the, the point here is to create heat, which will dri- steam, which will drive a turbine. You know, that's it. And all these sort of, you know, scenarios that we've been outlining about space, almost all of them depend on nuclear fusion. So they sort of sink nicely if you're mm-hmm. trying to create a coherent vision of the future. Um, and, I mean, I, I assume most listeners know this, but the reason why fusion is better than fission, which is what current nuclear technology does, is there's no icky waste, right? There's no, no. So it's, so it's, so it's clean. Uh, it's, uh, you're not, it's, it's safer the fuel is, you know, basically seawater. I mean, right. it's a little bit of a simplification. Uh, we have a lot of seawater, so it's, you know, can you do it? And can you do it? You know, can you do it cheap enough? Right. right. So that's that's an issue because ultimately, I mean, there's a kind of fusion that you would not create steam to move a turbine, and that is more speculative. Though there are um, sort of create electric electricity directly, and there are companies working on that. Uh, as well. So it has to be sort of be affordable. And there's certainly other kinds. We talk a lot, you know, there's different kinds of geothermal that you could do anywhere. You just won't have to do like in volcanic areas and things mm-hmm. like that, like in Scandinavia. So there's some great um, progress being made uh, there. Uh, space-based solar power. I've written a little bit about space-based mm-hmm. solar. So all these things are fundamentally kind of a post-resource energy technology. And that the reason we don't have is is purely because we just no one's been working on them. Mm-hmm. No one's been working on this stuff for fifty years because it just wasn't a priority, and that's a, that's a choice. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the moon would be a great place to put big honking fusion reactor, right? I mean, like first of all, keeping it cool would be pretty easy, <laughs> <laughs> um, and if it blows up, there's only limited damage that's going to be done. But like, there used to be talk about creating energy in you know, a solar. Space-based solar stuff, and I'd prefer it up there than down here because I think they're eyesores and gross. And I think we've been sold a huge bill of goods about how non-carbon intensive they are, some of these things are. You know, they require lots of input, carbon inputs to, to make. But um, but there used to be talk about how we could then beam through microwaves the energy back down to Earth, it, like. That makes me a little nervous, but like, explain how that would work. Careful where you're walking. <laughs> and that's, um, yeah, well, that, that's basically it. And again, the pro- the problem was really the economics. It took, you know, it was really costly to get things up into space. And um, again, I've written about some, uh, di- you know, some uh, some re- some you know really interesting research being done on that. But uh, the cost factor has suddenly shifted. Those economics have shifted mm-hmm. because. SpaceX and the ability to, to get things, to get a kilogram into orbit much cheaper and getting cheaper. And that is what, that, that is why, that is why people are doing any research right now on things like space-based solar or, or asteroid mining. Mm. It's purely because it's, it's not a lot cheaper to get things out in, in, into outer space. Um, again, it could have been much cheaper 50 years ago, but again, we you chose so, to go a different direction. So where's my space elevator? I mean, like, Glenn Reynolds, 20 years, 10 years ago, was basically just, like, every third post on Instapundit was about my space, about, about space elevators. And, like, no one talks about space elevators anymore. 
there was just a huge essay. I think it's in Scientific American, uh-huh. not New Scientist, uh-huh. but Scientist <laughs> American. So the, well, the, um, you know, looking at that again, power. How do you how, how do you power something like that? Well, if you have limitless energy, it makes it a lot easier. Right. Um, if you can, you know, if if you can if you can bring an asteroid back and basically hang the elevator from the asteroid, mm-hmm. it becomes a lot easier because if you're just kind of putting on the Earth, it's super, super heavy, and it probably has to be super, super wide at the base. So all these technologies, you begin to see like how they all kind of come together. The ability, yeah. the ability to, uh, the ability, the ability to create new materials that you could build a space elevator out of by using AI to come up with combinations of metals that you would that would take forever to go through and figure out on right. your own. AI is a, AI isn't just about creating better call centers. It's about as a kind of a super research assistant. To create discoveries that you'd have to have every person on Earth be a you know be a material science specialist. So these technologies, whether it's AI, uh, reducing launch costs, um, energy, all come together as kind of a suite of technology which we're making huge advances on that we haven't seen in a long time. Is why this stuff we're talking about it, and it doesn't just seem like kind of a fun a fun topic in January to talk about. But there's real things happening where this. Where people, I think, have that kind of enthusiasm that we had, you know, decades ago. Yeah, I mean, I I, I recently wrote a somewhat modestly tongue-in-cheek piece on on um, the Marxist case for fusion, um, and there's also a Marxist case for AI as well. You know, you know <laughs> um, we don't need markets and prices because the supercomputer will figure out what we. Yeah, I'm I'm less sympathetic <laughs> it's called, like, to that. Fully automated luxury communism. But, you know, at the end of history, according to Marx, in a, in a true communist society, you get to create a bespoke life for yourself, right? And Marx was actually very bad at economics, and he's very bad at, at politics. Um, but that romantic notion, I think, still has a lot of appeal to people. And, like, you can't have that without fusion or without basically limitless cheap energy. And I do think that one of the things, the sort of cornucopians need to start. Well, the solar punkers would disagree, right? Because there'd be <laughs> less people and they'd ever, everyone to have their own solar panel. Fewer people. Yeah. Um, no, but like, like it, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, the, the left is very good at selling what they think are going to be the benefits of their policies and the right's much worse at it. And like, there are a lot of really great green things that would come from fusion, right? Like, first of all, you can get rid of all those dams, um, uh, restore all these waterways, right? You could do desalinization on a scale. Like that's the only thing stopping us from doing desalinization on a big scale now is it's just so energy intensive, right? Um, and you can just go through a list of, of so many of the problems, you know, like give each elephant in Africa an anti-poaching drone. It just follows it around, you know, and and it's it's really sort of an ultimate general purpose technology that affects all other technologies. And again, in ways that we can't possibly, you know, sort of imagine, which is one reason why it's difficult, I think, to come up with these compelling futures. And also, I'm not I'm not selling uh, a utopia. Uh, One of the interesting sort of debates I've had is that um, speaking of science fiction, the TV show The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I love. Which takes place, you know, a couple hundred years in the future, which I think is a very positive show because it's a show in which we're still here. No nuclear war. 
climate change, well, we seem to have survived it, all right? It had, it had impacts, but there's a lot of people on Earth that are living longer. Uh, even if something hit the Earth and destroyed it, we're, we're, we're on Mars, we're everywhere. To me, that seems like not a bad future. Man, you should do PR for the world <laughs> government to be fans, because yeah, I think it's a little gloomier than that. <laughs> but people like yourself, they don't like it because, well, you know, there obviously was climate change. Right. And capitalism. The seawalls around yeah, lower Manhattan. Wall, yeah. uh, and capitalism still exists in mm-hmm. the future, so so it's inherently bad. Mm-hmm. And there's still geopolitical conflict, yes, because it's still us. We're still there. It's still humans everywhere. Right. But to me, like, given some of the dystopian forecasts that people are giving, that doesn't seem so bad to me. We're still here. We're solving problems. Maybe some of those solutions create a new problem, but we keep moving forward incrementally, and that is sort of my kind of, like, conservative futurism, not creating a utopia or, you know, paralyzed by fears of dystopia. Yeah, so that's sort of... I'm glad you brought up, brought this up because this gets to my problem with a lot of the sci-fi stuff is that I love The Expanse. I think it's great. Um, um, it's part of that tradition. Remember Outland? Um, with Sean Connery, <laughs> yes. you know that was it was one of the first movies to really do space as a gritty mining town kind of thing, and I, I love that stuff. But um, the the expanse still rests on, I would say, nineteen seventies outdated economic notions about how economics works, right? For sure, and. I get that you have to have, you will always have poor people, right? But poverty is a relative term. And like my, you know, my dad always used to tell me there's nothing in economics that says you can't have a society where everybody's, where the poorest people are millionaires in terms of the material circumstances in which they live. And I mean, you know, this stuff as well as I do that, you know, the average, you know, mongrel free breakfast eating RA here making, you know, slave wages lives better. Still too much, by the way. Still way too much. <laughs> For sure. Lives, lives, uh, listeners should know we got two of them, <laughs> two of them in here right now. Welcome. Um, and, uh, no, but the average poor person in America, I, I, I think the poor, the lowest quintiles in the top 3% globally in America or something like that. Um, and, like your average sort of lower middle class person in terms of material circumstances lives better than the richest people in the world a hundred years ago, 200 years ago. I mean, you pick your date. Um, George Washington have air conditioning. Right. And also very hot in Virginia. This is the, in the Count of Monte Cristo, they make a big deal about the millionaire being able to serve two kinds of fish. Um, at in Versailles, people used to take leaks down the stairwell, right? I mean, like right. indoor plumbing is, in the winter. is pretty awesome. Yeah. And, you know, modern dentistry is pretty awesome. And antibiotics, pretty cool. And so, like, my problem with the expanse treatment of this stuff is it makes it seem as if the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, there, that none of these technological breakthroughs would redound significantly to the, to the lowest rungs, which is just not true. Utterly. I, I, I wrote an uh, uh, essay in my very high-value, high-content newsletter called uh-huh. It's the Blade Runner Fallacy, uh-huh. I call that. 
um, that you would have, a few, the, you know, the the, the, you know, the nineteen I think eighty two uh, film uh, Blade Runner, with Ridley, you know, directed by Ridley Scott, where we are meant to believe that there are off world colonies. So so which so that this obviously is a world with, you know, advanced space travel, uh, advanced energy sources. They can create. They have advanced AI, robotics, and biotechnology. And yet this world is unable to solve climate problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are, people are, you know, so poor living beneath these mile-high skyscrapers that this world is a dystopia. And it's the same thing with the expanse. Uh, there might be people without, maybe you'll have 50% unemployment. Right. But these people, their material conditions would almost certainly be wildly better than they're depicted. And it's because that doesn't fit the narrative that if we have all this progress, it really won't help the average person, and it will all be captured by the 0.01%, which, again, is utterly ahistorical. Right. Part of the problem is that there's this mindset that can't imagine that rich people, that businessmen in the future um, will want to uh, satisfy the market for the good life from poor people, right? I mean, like, like somehow, like, oh, the, the, we can't, we can't sell the really good medicine to, to to poor people, even though we'd make a huge profit, because we have to fit some sort of dystopian model where the it's the Morlocks versus Eloy, as far as the eye can see, and and it's in it's in a lot of the Star Wars stuff now too, you know, like, um, you know, everybody who's in the one of the outer planets is a is a scavenger. Who has to live, you know, collecting stuff out of piles of garbage, and I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's weird how Star Trek really, the economics of Star Trek are better, are they're not super plausible, but they're more plausible than most of the rest of the sci-fi genre. I get no sense that on uh, on the Earth of Star Trek that there are huge camps right. of poor people, which right. there are which there are uh, in the Expanse. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like, if 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 you have replicators, which are essentially three uh, D printers, they're like ten thousandth generation three D printers. They move molecules around. They can make chicken soup. They can make you know clothes. They can make whatever you want from just ambient molecules. Civil War general uniform. Yeah, exactly. On a particular. By definition, no one is starving. By definition, no one is is. Uh, you know, uh, suffering from material scarcity. Yeah, some people have worse views out of their windows because they can't, there's only a, so much, like, shoreline property on, on pretty lakes. But, like, first of all, who cares given what you could generate, you know, fake <laughs> through your window. But my point is, is, like, I think... We can make a bigger Manhattan, Jonah. We can make a bigger Manhattan. They've, well, they've made yes, a bigger Manhattan. Yeah, can, this, this notion that, you know, that none of it will somehow... When I was... When the New York Times wrote its article, Dancing on the Grave of Supersonic Transport in 1973, one of the points it made is, who cares? So a few, you know, just a, so a few people can't go quickly mm. over the you know, Atlantic Ocean. Well, that may have been true early, but 50 years of supersonic transport, I think that'd be a, that's how everybody would yep. be getting different places. Um, or like, same thing with the, when we have the anniversary of uh, the introduction of the iPhone uh, this week, the criticism back then, oh, this very expensive product, these smartphones for a few people, you know, only business will ever buy them and they don't have a keyboard. So even business won't buy them. Well, maybe, you know, 
iPhones and smartphones more broadly, uh, like you know, four billion people have smartphones today. Right. That is the history of technological progress diffusing throughout all sectors of society. Yeah, and so that, my only point is, is that I love sci-fi. You love sci-fi. Sci-fi is supposed to raise our ambitions and our imagination about what the future could be. On the opposite, and so much of it is suffused with this economic pessimism. Pessimism, and I don't mind scary future sci-fi, but like make it accurate, make it like some or plausible. You know, aliens do this, or the. I mean, there's a rich, rich you know, vain to tap into of what the problems of abundance would do to the human brain. Like, I do worry about people just checking out and going into the metaverse or whatever right. we're supposed to call it. And, you know, the, the Huxleyan vision. Yes. Yeah. That stuff really worries me because I think it's actually a plausible part of our future. But, like, you know, in a world with as flying cars and half the population is drinking puddle water, I just I don't believe any of it. That is not the likely future, I think. I think there's a, there's a whole interesting range of issues that you brought up, not addressed. And instead and instead of having science fiction uh, that, uh, that, that that portrays a, a, a better future, but with still pro, but still still problems again, uh, not a utopia, we're still human beings, uh, that's not what we've gotten. So we've gotten a dystopian, implausible future, which is I think both you know, permeated our media, but also how people think. How many people think that, you know, let's say I like maybe, you know, I, 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 I like economic growth. I like making more money, but there's no way everybody in India can live like me. I think a lot of people right. think that's true, and that's that's how it impacts sort of our everyday thinking. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, Wattenberg used to point out, um, you know, because early on all these people saw, talk about how overpopulation creates synonymous with poverty and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you do know that the population density of Manhattan is greater than the population density of Bangladesh. Um, like, people can live in dense popula- in, in dense population centers and live really well. Um, but we just... Mile-high vertical farms if you have abundant energy. If you have abundant energy, right. like, that, that part, that factor in the equation... Uh, as, is solved, and all the other factors solve a lot easier. So, what do you worry about? I mean, are you just a reverse chicken little, and you just think the sky is always rising, or um, uh, like, you know, there is a non-trivial chance that AI puts people like you and me out of business. Um, like, I'm a th- premium product, very unique. Uh huh. Um, does. Does, does any of this stuff worry you in any way? Like, what are some potential downsides? Yeah, well, my bigger concern is that we will worry ourselves to death and that, you know, and that we will delay. These concerns will delay good things sure. from happening. Now, the, take the idea of putting itself to work. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've probably uh, mentioned, uh, you know, and I, I, oh, I'm, I'm sure it was, you know, in your book, uh, the you know the, the past two hundred years, if you just look at a simple, a very sort of a simplified graph, it shows progress just going off the charts. Sure. You know, for the last two hundred years. Well, that's a simple. The line for everybody didn't quite go straight up. There was a long sure. period where productivity was increasing, but wages weren't increasing, and there's a lot of disruption. They call that Engels mm-hmm. uh, Engels pause. Maybe we have another Engels pause where we get a lot of we get a lot of job market disruption. And 
you know, people are losing jobs. Maybe wages for some people aren't going up. And it doesn't look like life is getting a lot better. So I, that that is a difficult, disruptive phase. And I, I worry not just the impact of that phase, but also that people will begin to think like, listen, uh, we had Bill Gates, not a technophobe, suggesting a robot tax a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> is, is it that huge for people who are who don't like trade to say, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, maybe we shouldn't have kiosks in fast food places. Or mm-hmm. maybe there should be an employee standing next to the kiosk punching it in for you so we can create jobs. To me, that I can see things like that happening. So my concern is that you'll get a disruptive period where people will only see sort of the, the disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am concerned about that. And there are, there are groups, you know, focusing on, you know, you know, unaligned AI, the AI that wants to kill us. Um, to me, it was a very bad sign that, that at the sort of the height of the 90s boom, they had Wired Magazine, which was like the big mm-hmm. you know, cheerleader, you know, ran an essay from a technologist worried that nanotechnology was going to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, play, that has played a role in why we don't fund the kind of nano, you know, self-replicating machines that create just about anything, which is mm-hmm. like a genie machine, why we don't have that. That, is, to me, is a very good example of how sort of the culture and media and pessimism can actually change policy in a way uh, with real impact. So instead of having a genie machine, uh, nanotechnology just means, you know, we have better sunscreen. Mm-hmm. I do think it's good that we're banning microplastics, by the way. Um, but you'll, you'll, you'll live forever. If you're more plastic than man, <laughs> you'll never age. Um, you know? <laughs> um, uh, no, it's just... It's, that argument also did not work on my son when I gave him the immortal. It will make us all immortal if you're more <laughs> plastic than man. Um, have you watched The Peripheral? I have not watched the peripheral. What is wrong with you? Uh, I know. Um, I was. I was told. I. I. I listen. Is that going to continue? Listen. I, I. I've been watching the TV show uh, 1899, and they canceled it. And yeah. they. And they canceled it. I'm watching another great show, uh, Outer Range. Have you seen that? I. I really like and that. That, that, that I, don't th- I don't know if there's going to be another season after the first one of that. Either. Oh, really? I, that so would I've be been a shame. Burned. I've been burned a few times. Yeah, yeah. So I love the show Station Eleven. I don't know if you watched that. I did. I which, did. Which I knew was probably going to be one season, and it was a beautiful. Heartwarming arc, yeah. which 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 cold, calculating capitalists like yourself don't like. I uh, too many warm fuzzies. Yeah, I mean, I. So, here's the thing. I. I think I need to rewatch it because I know so many people who got so much more out of it than I did. Um, but I'm also and much better than the book, actually. Too. Um, uh, I'm also of the school. Where like my favorite part of zombie movies is like the first ten minutes yes. where society's coming apart. Yes, <laughs> and my favorite thing about like you know killer virus movies <laughs> is like thinking about how I'd shop for it, right? Yeah. Not like you know twenty years later right. where we're all using ox carts or whatever. And um, if you had a kill for food, how would you do it? Yeah, Katana, all that stuff. I like that uh, stuff. slingshot. Uh. <laughs> um, and uh, um, and that's one of the things I liked about the 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 World War Z book was that he, Max Brooks focused more on that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, no, the peripheral's really good. It is the first movie. The William Gibson, based on the William Gibson. I believe so, yeah. And um, uh, it it opens, you think, okay, this is this will be an entertaining, violent, sort of video game adjacent sci-fi movie. Show. Redundant, entertaining, violent, redundant. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But it very quickly is actually becomes very smart. And um, it's worth watching. And it 
don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but it this is revealed very early in the first episode. It um it deals with a variety of time travel that for the first time I can think of is technologically plausible. Um it has to do with quantum computing stuff. And the quantum computing stuff is fascinating. Um, um where where do you see all that stuff going? Are you excited about it? Are you worried about it? Do you not care? Well, uh I think what's interesting is that again, how all these technologies tend to enable other technologies. Other technologies. Yeah. I think it's that kind of combinatorial effect yeah. which people they see these things in isolation. Oh, AI. Oh, what? Oh, AI also helps us predict how how you know proteins fold, right. and we can create new. All you know. Oh, and it, it it helps us find new metals, so we can make a we can make a space alloy. I think that comment that to me is what's super. Uh, exciting right now, and why you know why I hope I'm not writing you know that you know I'm not writing oh oh we lost the twenty we didn't get a roaring twenty twenties oh we lo- maybe we'll get a thrilling thirties oh we lost the thrilling thirties maybe we'll get a you know fantastic forties I don't I'm very optimistic that that we that we won't mm-hmm. um, I think we're we're aware again I think the pandemic played a role it's showing what a world of scarcity and shortages and not having not having vaccines ready to go. And how preparation can only take you so far, mm-hmm. right? You have to be you have to be a rich, technologically capable society to react to things. I mean, there were a gazillion reports saying there's going to be a big, you know, pandemic on the way, uh, and yet we still weren't particularly prepared. And the mm-hmm. reason we were able to respond because we had, were rich and we had great technology. And hopefully, that lesson is a, is a reason why we will have a at some point, I hope, a a, a, a roaring twenties and beyond. All right. James Pethokoukas, author of Faster Please, a Substack newsletter. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. Um, thanks for doing this and hope to have you back. Ah, thank you very much, John Goldberg. All right. I finally get to say it literally, not just figuratively, but uh, James Pethokoukas has left the studio. He has actually physically left the studio. Um, it was great to have him on. Um, uh, nice to have a dose of cornucopian optimism um, on here. And, um, thank you so much for listening. I'm not going to, um, dwell on any announcement stuff or any of that kind of thing. Cause I got to go give a talk at the fund for American studies. Um, but, uh, we got Cass Sunstein on this week as well. So it's a, it's another, um, great week. And you know, the, with, with Sunstein on, it'll bring up the average of the quality of these two guests considerably. And um, thanks for listening. If you can become a subscriber to The Dispatch, that would be super terrific awesome. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.